We're back to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to give particular attention to the second half of verse 2 along with the third verse. And again, I'll remind you that the context here is the unity of the body of Christ. And verses we'll get to, Lord willing, beginning next week, set that unity before us in these words. We're reminded there that within the body of Christ, within the Godhead itself, that there is one body, there is one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But before we get into the study of this great unity of the Christian's faith and of the Godhead itself, we're given in the first few verses of chapter 4 four virtues that must be present in the life of all believers. Those four virtues are found in the first and second verses. Two we looked at last week, lowliness and gentleness. Two we'll look at today, long-suffering and forbearance or bearing with one another. And then all four of these come under the heading or the umbrella of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then we come to those verses which I just read, for or therefore there is one body, one Spirit, and so on. These four virtues are necessary, and I'll add the word absolutely necessary, if the unity of the Spirit is to be maintained. Reason being, there are two truths that can be said concerning the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is that the church is an assembly of people who have been called out of the world to faith in Christ. That group of people represented by us here this morning have been gloriously saved from their sin and have been drawn out of the world, now assembled together to give praise, worship, and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second reality, the second truth that concerns the church is that this assembly, gloriously saved as we are, is made up of those who still have a sin nature, who still struggle with remaining sin, having not yet been fully saved from the presence of sin. That's why these virtues are absolutely necessary. That's why they must be cultivated in our lives. Things like humility, lowliness, gentleness or meekness, patience or long-suffering, and forbearance. The active pursuit of these virtues is absolutely essential for the church to function in the world as the redeemed of God. Perhaps you have a story, a memory of the church of Jesus Christ being less than it should be. I have a story. I've actually got stories, but I'll spare you those. Most often, the story, whatever it may be, whatever it may be reduced to, comes down to the lack of one or more or all of these virtues not being present in the lives of the people who comprise the local church. Now think back in your mind or your memory when you've been a part of a church or a situation in a church where 
things have gone awry and the testimony given to Christ is not what it should be before those who are outside and looking in. And your experience will probably tell you that in your own heart and mind, one or more or all of these things were missing. And then once you see that log in your own eye, if you were able to look and given grace enough of God to look at your brothers and sisters in the church, you might see the speck there in their eye that one or more or all of these things were missing in their lives as well. Last week we looked at the first two, humility and gentleness or meekness. William Hendrickson says of humility that it is the first, the second, and the third essential to the Christian life. That's his way of saying you cannot live a faithful Christian life before God and before your fellow believers if there is not a growing humility in you. And to define it again, it is thinking more of, your, of others than yourself, putting their interests above your own, seeing yourself in a lowly state before God and your fellow believers, not seeing yourself in an exalted state. We also looked at last week meekness. We tried to define it as there is a certain ability or power, if you will, that is under control. William Hendrickson again defines the word as one who is slow to insist on their own rights. But moving on this week, we come to the next two. The first being long-suffering and the second being forbearance. Let's read this in its a bit larger context, so I'm going to go back and read verse 1 down through verse 6 again. Where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless his word to us this morning. Our Father, we pray that you would open our understanding, that you would open our ears, that you would be our teacher, our instructor. And show us the necessity of these virtues in our life. And Lord, we pray that you would not just show us the necessity, but also that you would help us by your Spirit to put them into practice. We ask it for Christ's sake. We ask it for the good of this local assembly. And we ask it unto the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. So let's look at the first of these words. Long-suffering. Paul tells us we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called, which means that we are to walk worthy of the Christ that called. And one of the four primary ways he gives us to do that is with this word long-suffering. It's translated patience in both the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. 
there will be no unity within the body of Christ, no maintained unity in the body of Christ without patience. Reason being is that sanctification is a long process. Sanctification in you, sanctification in me, sanctification in us all is a lengthy process that will not end until we close our eyes in death on this earth or the Lord Jesus returns to take us to be with himself. That being the case, that none of us are where we hope to be, that we often fail, that we struggle with sin, it is therefore by Paul and the Spirit who inspired him absolutely necessary that we be patient with one another, that we be long-suffering. Literally, the word means to be long-souled, that there be no end to, what we, to the length that we will go in preserving the unity of the church. And that comes out a little more fully in the next word that we're going to see and then the call to endeavor to keep the unity of the faith. But just looking at this one word for patience, obviously it's a fruit of the Spirit, a portion of the fruit of the Spirit. This is not something that you and I are naturally drawn to. It is something that is produced in us by the Spirit of God. My natural inclination, if I'm honest, and perhaps yours, if you're honest with yourself, is the very opposite opposite of patience. It's the very opposite of long-suffering. It is the response of indignation and wanting to remove myself from the person or the situation. In this word, long-suffering, there is the connotation that we will remain under the situation so that we can act in patience towards one another. If we remove ourselves, then we remove the the necessity of patience. But if we stay intact, then patience is something that must rise to the surface. When you think about the word long-suffering, perhaps your mind will go back to the Lord's own revelation of Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. You remember there that the Lord tells him, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness. When this word is applied to the character or as an attribute of God, we glory in it, don't we? I mean, aren't you thankful that the Lord acted toward you in a way that manifested His patience and long-suffering? He is still acting towards you and me in that way. And so we see it as one of the highest of the attributes of God, that He is long-suffering towards us. But then we're also told by Paul, in the New Testament, that the Lord is long-suffering towards those who are outside of Christ because He is desirous of their salvation, their repentance. But yet we know that there is an end in that realm or respect to the long-suffering nature of God. He is also the God of judgment and justice and will call those into account for their refusal of the message of the gospel and the hope that is presented to them there. 
But as Christians, we glory in the fact that our God has been long-suffering towards us. But we also need to realize that we're called by grace and by the help of the Spirit to emulate that long-suffering with each other. How many times has God forgiven you? Innumerable. Countless times. When the question was presented to Jesus, how many times must I forgive an offending brother? Jesus gives an answer, not so much that we will do the math and begin to make check marks that when we reach that point we have ultimately fulfilled it. He gives an answer which when we understand it rightly, says as many times as necessary. This is the very heart of patience. It is an element of the Christian Christ-like love that we are called to love one another with. You remember how Paul defined it in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. It is kind. So that's the first word, long-suffering. Then we get into the second part of this, and it is the word forbearance or bearing with one another. The New American Standard probably helps us in its interpretation of the word. It says, showing tolerance. The ESV again says, bearing with one another. I like the way Curtis Vaughn defines the word. He says, It is the ability given by God to make allowances for the faults of fellow believers. We realize that we still have remaining faults. We're not yet perfect. What happens when you put a bunch of people with faults in the same room? There is the great tendency toward schism, division, and factions. So it's no wonder that Paul, in his epistles, writing to these various churches, that he warns and even rebukes the presence of schisms and factions. This idea of bearing with one another... John MacArthur defines it like this. He says, It is the ability to take abuse from others while continuing to love them. And then he goes on to say, It is being, in its very essence, Christ-like. Is that not what Christ does? What he, how He has acted towards us? Continuing to love us, even in those times when we are, by our words, by our actions, or by our thoughts, abusing him, so to speak. And then the same application can be made as, as we made with the word patience. The first inclination of my heart and yours is going to be to remove yourself from the situation that calls for forbearance. To go on to the greener pasture but let me tell you what you already know. That green pasture is full of sheep 
who will sin against you, who have faults, who still have remaining sin. And once that initial joy of meeting new people and becoming linked together with new believers begins to fade, and once you really begin to know one another, guess what is going to come to the forefront again? The need for patience, the need for humility, the need for meekness, the need for forbearance. So this applies across the board to any local assembly of believers because we are all essentially the same. We all have the same remaining sin nature. That's why we have to be patient. But yet here is a little different angle. The Lord uses the necessities of patience and forbearance to further our own sanctification. Being in these types of relationships where we have to exude these virtues knocks the rough edges off of us. It's like sandpaper. Getting rid of what is there and how clearly the Lord uses things like this to show us what's there, to what's really in our heart, what really needs to be dealt with. And so when we take all four of these together, lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and forbearance, those are the key ingredients, if you will, to the maintenance of the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. This is all summed up by Paul in this last phrase where he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So let's look at a couple of things here. Notice that Paul says to keep the unity or to maintain it. The Spirit of God in the life of a local assembly has given that local assembly and the members of it, those who are assembled together, based upon the, His own unity, the unity of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that unity is to be kept, not created. It's a big difference in keeping something that we've been given and then trying to create something out of nothing. And so think of it this way. Perhaps this illustration will be helpful. Perhaps some of you in your families have an heirloom that's been passed on from generation to generation. It's something that you have been given to keep. It's precious. You didn't create it. You didn't make it. But you, it has been entrusted into your possession now for you to maintain it in hopes and an effort that you can, along the same lines, pass it on to the next generation. How careful would you be to keep it? You would give it a prominent place in your home, out of the way, somewhere. Perhaps you would even put it behind glass or under lock and key, whatever it may be, so that you could preserve the quality and the expense of this precious possession. When we think of it in that way, when we come to Christ, 
And when we are united to one another in the church, in essence, what has been given to us is the unity of the Spirit. And we are to keep it. We're not to fracture it. We're not to distort it. We're not to rend it apart or make an attempt to rend it apart. We are to hold it as a very precious possession given to us by Christ Himself, won for us by Christ Himself. It's no wonder then that these virtues come to the forefront of how we are going to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's no wonder that we are called to these things, humility, meekness, patience, and forbearance. The very opposite of those things, if you think of them in your mind, the opposite of lowliness or humility is pride. The opposite of meekness, again, is is a harshness. The opposite of patience is the quickly flying into indignation or even rage. The opposite of bearing with one another. The opposite of forbearance is to not forbear. To remove yourself from the situation. To become agitated and to work, work out your relationship under that condition. And what happens to the unity of the Spirit? That the church is supposed to hold to the outside world looking in and to reaffirm to one another every time they meet together. What happens to that unity? It is not destroyed, but distorted. And it gives off a picture that no Christian in their right mind, thinking sanely, would want to give to a person standing outside the faith of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be the reason or the cause to make others stumble. Exactly the opposite is what the Scripture calls us to be. It's to be so alluring in our faith, in our love for Christ, that people are drawn in. But then we all have experiences, don't we? Some worse than others. But in doing a real heart searching of my own experience in church life, where things have gotten off course and astray, almost always I can trace it back to my own heart, lacking in one of these four primary virtues. Humility was lacking. Perhaps meekness or gentleness was lacking. Patience was lacking. Forbearance was lacking. Or in some cases, all of them were lacking. The next thing to see here in this phrase is the word endeavoring. Again, Curtis Vaughn says, this word combines the ideas of haste, Eagerness and zeal. This is something that takes effort and work. This is something that might cause you to shed a tear or two or a thousand. This is something that you must set your mind to. This is something that is not going to come naturally, something that may very well, very often not even come easily. 
but it is the work that is set before the Christian, and it is the work that is set before an assembly of Christians that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. But we're told here, outside of these four virtues, that there is something that holds us together. There is a glue that binds and unites us together, and you see it there in the phrase, in the bond of peace. So taken as a whole, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of the things that all Christians have in common, when there is true conversion, when the Spirit of God has has really come into your life and made you new and you are striving now by His help to walk in the newness of life, there is one thing that is in common, that we all have in common. We are at peace with God and therefore we should be at peace with one another. The greatest of those is that we are at peace with God. There is no longer enmity. We are no longer warring against Him. We are no longer objects of His wrath. So when you think of the church as that, and it is this along with so many more things, it is a group or an assembly of people who were once objects of the wrath of God, but now they are objects of His mercy. When that bond of peace rises to the forefront and we see this brother or this sister that may have offended me, but yet to look back at myself, I was quick to take offense. Ultimately, they have been transferred into this realm of being at peace with God, just as I. How can I not be actively pursuing peace with them? This is the bond. This is the glue that holds us together. This is something that we should strive to recognize more and more. And in case we fall prey to the thinking or the idea of, you hear people say this usually in jest, or at least I hope it's usually in jest, that Paul never dealt with a so-and-so. Paul never had this type of person. Well, let me remind you of the larger context with which we read these words. Paul is not writing to people necessarily like our like our culture, who share so many things in common. Paul is writing to those who were recently converted out of paganism. And even more large than that, he is writing to this assembly made up both of Jew and Gentile. In their natural relation to one another, I don't know if there's ever been in history a a group of people more opposed than the Jews and the rest of mankind represented by the Gentiles. That's why we've dealt so long and Paul dealt so long in the second chapter about all that Christ has done, all that God has done in Christ to make these two groups of people one in Him. And go back with me, if you would, to the 14th verse 
of chapter 2. Because it, it goes back and Paul is almost as if he's come full circle when he's speaking of the bond of peace in the third verse of chapter 4. You go back to verse 14, speaking to these two groups of people. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile was of such a nature that it was a part of the cross work of Jesus Christ to remove that enmity. That enmity having been erected by the very law of God, represented here in verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So when we think of it in that way and we're reminded exactly what Paul means by this phrase, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we remember the expense that this peace has come to us. It's come at the shedding, at the cost of the shedding of Christ's own blood. We should be more than willing to endeavor to keep the unity of of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God help us to do that. Thinking of these four virtues in a, on a larger scale, someone has said these virtues furnish a broad character, characterization of the new disposition and behavior revealed in the Christian's new life. In Christ. Why is it that a local church must insist that its membership be comprised of believers only? Is because in believers only are you going to find these virtues operative? You don't find these virtues operative to the length and to the extent expected in those who have not been made right with God through Christ, that have not, been, that have not received a new heart. And so these things are nothing more, nothing less, than the new disposition and behavior revealed in the Christian's new life in Christ. Rather than look at these things and see them as a weight that we must live up to, perhaps the Lord would help us to see them in a greater light as being gracious gifts of His that He has given to us that we can interact with one another in these ways. thinking along those same lines, speaking of the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the body of Christ, John Stott, a name that you may recognize, he said, where these are absent, and he's speaking about these four virtues, where these are absent, no external structure of unity can stand. 
And if you were to read that sentence in its larger context, what he's saying there is, where these four virtues are lacking, put whatever structure in place you wish. It will not work to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Make as many rules as you will. The end product of that formal external structure will not end in the keeping or the maintenance of the unity of the Spirit. He goes on to say, but where these exist, there is good hope and a real expectation that real unity, which is visible, can exist in the church. And that's really what we are endeavoring to do as a local assembly, is to have the type of unity that is not below the surface, where we're forbearing with one another in the sense that it's all we can do just to hold it together for a few hours and grind our teeth and, and do all of those types of things just so we can get over with this day and get back home. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's saying a real, visible unity that expresses itself in love towards one another. Where these exist, humility, meekness, patience, and forbearance, where these exist, there is a real, visible Unity. Isn't that what we should desire to be? For the glory of the one who has saved us by the shedding of his blood? Shouldn't our great desire and our endeavor to be to keep and to hold this most precious thing that he has given to us by his spirit? Unity. But it's been a struggle from the very beginning of the church. That's why Paul's epistles are filled with exhortations to unity. There are schisms and factions that arise. You think about the way Paul addresses this over teachers. He said, some say that I am of Paul. Some say that I am of Apollos. And the list would go on and on. And what happens there is that factions and divisions arise. You think about the, the spiritual gifts in the church. You can't read Paul's two letters to the Corinthians without seeing that there were factions and divisions arising in the church over the use the right use or the abuse of what Paul terms the gifts of the Spirit. You couple that with the natural tendency toward enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles that now make up these churches. Then, then just like now, at every turn there is opportunity to destroy or mar or taint the unity that we have been presented by Christ. That affects two things. It affects your individual testimony as a Christian, and it affects the testimony of the assembly or body that you are a part of. And again, no one in a moment of sane thinking would say, I want to, by my actions towards you, 
mar my own testimony before men or be a part of that which mars the the larger testimony of this local assembly in the community. None of us would say that. But the reality is, very often we are presented with whether or not we will act with humility, gentleness, long-suffering, or forbearance. So the question may arise, and if so, we need to be ready to give an answer to it. How long do we have to persist in these things? How long must this go on? Till you die or Christ comes back. That's how long. And I think part of that is bound up in the meaning of this word, endeavoring. It's a present reality. Do it now. But it's also continuing. Keep on doing it. Let it define who you are and what you are doing now. But let let it define you tomorrow. And next week, next month, next year, next decade. We are always endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so with that foundation of the first four verses of this chapter, and I'll remind you, this is where Paul begins to apply all of these great doctrines of the first three chapters With that foundation set in the first three verses of chapter 4, he then goes on to say, there is one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And then, do you see verse 7? We're going to get there in time. There is a word of contrast that begins, verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what we'll see when we get there is that this unity in the economy and the wisdom of God is maintained through great diversity. Only in the Christian church where you find people who are operating from a new heart will you find such diverse unity. The the diversity is multifaceted. That's why we find in the book of Revelation that there are people from every tribe, every tongue that have been drawn in. But yet the diversity is even more more far-reaching than that in the spiritual gifting that Christ has given to each one. So what a thing of beauty and glory we are a part of. By God's grace, we've been saved as individuals. Individually made right in the sight of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then by virtue of that, he has placed us according to his own wisdom 
just as he has seen fit in the local assemblies. And he has imparted gifts among that assembly. He has given his spirit, he has given grace and the ability to interact and relate to one another in humility, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance to keep that precious gift that he has given us that without which we individually or corporately have no testimony to the outside world. What a sad reality it is when a church mars, taints, or even destroys the unity that they have been presented with such bickering and factious relations that its witness in the community in which it stands has been completely nullified. What a sad reality that some churches have degenerated into not being known as gospel preaching, Christ-loving places of fellowship, but places of bickering, backbiting, factions, where there is the absence of humility, the absence of meekness, the absence of patience, the absence of forbearance. What does that mean? If those things are missing, well, very often it could mean that there has been no real conversion in the heart and that these assemblies are being led by those that have not been taken from the kingdom of darkness to light. That's why we insist, we pray, we plead with the Lord to do that work of regeneration in the hearts of all of us here in the lives of our children. So the question that I close with really has two parts. You'll have to answer this on your own for yourself. Are you endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Is that a definition of your activity in this local assembly? Are you endeavoring? And then the second part of the question, will you continue to endeavor? Will you continue in this work? And then the reminder, Christ's glory is what is at stake. More so than any personal offense that you may take, more so than any harsh word that may be directed towards you by someone who has faults just like you, just like me, More so than any of that, it is the honor of Christ our Lord that is at stake. God help us. May he give us much grace 
to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work these very things in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us with these things we've looked at today to be long-suffering, to be categorized as those who are forbearing. And Lord, help us now and continuing as we move forward to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit that you have given, to do so in the bond of peace, peace with God and peace with one another. Lord, I pray you would add your blessing to your word this morning by your Spirit, that you would place it into our hearts and help us, Lord, to make application of it under the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.